0: Thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Hiawatha for most of you, and if it's your first Sunday, I'm glad you guys are with us. As I think uh, Aaron said earlier, hope you're having a great uh, weekend, too. It's been beautiful outside, and thanks for joining us. Uh, If it's your first Sunday, thanks for spending party weekend, too, with us. Glad to have you guys uh, here. Uh, We're going to dive into Genesis. A lot to talk about today. It's uh, one of the more significant passages of this book. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament, so if you want to... um, open your Bibles. What is that? Can you guys hear that? Okay. (laughs) Peter, it's a fail. You're fired. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Genesis is the, um, yes. Nope. Yes. Rehired. That's right. Rehired. That's, that's wonderful. All right. Thanks, Peter. Um, Alright, so we're in Genesis, like I'm saying, if you want to turn to your uh, Bibles or your devices or the P-Bibles, easy book to find, it's the first book of the the Old Testament of the whole Bible, if uh, you're new to it, I'll just turn to the the very first part. We're in Genesis 11, verses 27 to chapter 12, verse 9 today, looking at this idea of God, Uh, and Peter was talking about this, but God calling a man named Abram, who's later renamed Abraham, I'll talk a little bit about that um, in just a second, but Uh, To catch you guys up to speed, if you haven't been here for this or if you're new to the Bible, uh, basically what's been happening so far in Genesis is that God has made the world and sin has entered the world through humankind's rebellion against God and then things have kind of spiraled downward from there uh, since. And so things, whether on an individual level or kind of a big, uh, more global scale, things have just gotten really bad. People have continued to rebel, they've worshipped other gods, they've killed their brothers Uh, they have just, as it says about Noah in chapter 6, the the intents of their heart are only evil continually. That's basically the idea picture of humankind right there, is that that only evil continually is pouring from the hearts of humankind. Uh, A worldwide flood ensues, uh, God kind of starts over with Noah and his family, and we basically pick up uh, a little bit after that. So, we looked at a couple things since, but um, chapter 12 uh, comes basically right, right after that. So, We've seen things spiral downwards, but God has continued to work uh, mysteriously and, and graciously, almost behind the scenes, to bring about uh, a complete annihilation of sin and death. And that's not happened yet, of course, but it's going to uh, through Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we're seeing whispers of this. We're seeing people uh, be uh, being raised up or being covered or being sealed or chosen or talked to in a way that hints at that future remedy that's going to come Uh, later. And so, narratively speaking, then, we've been saying reversing the curse. So, people have sinned. A curse has come to people, human hearts. uh, Exile has ensued between people and God, and all of creation actually has been cursed. So, uh, produce doesn't provide. Animals kill each other. They attack human beings. Uh, Harsh winters uh, have come now after uh, the flood, especially when seasons kind of arose and storms and, and all of that. So, creation's kind of cursed, too, as a reflection of it. But uh, relationships marred, especially between us and God, but all kinds of things have happened. But God is staying strangely faithful. Uh, grace and uh, God, just God's character is surprising. It's, it's supposed to not make sense a lot of times because it's, it happens when we don't deserve it. It happens when we're not looking for it. And, and so almost behind the scenes, sometimes not, but almost behind the scenes, God's working quietly to to do these uh, gracious, kind, uh, sin-overturning Things or at least hinting at them—that's been happening uh, up to up to this point, whether through individuals or kind of on a, a bigger scale. So salvation's already been a big theme. Today's passage then serves as a major section break. So if you like, to, if you like to take uh, notes or outlines or just think about books of the Bible on this level, just put a big break right after chapter 11, or especially right after right after 11:26. We're going to start in 11:27 today, but but pretty much right at 12:1 uh, is a major section break in the book of Genesis because up to this point, we've been working on more of a global, even cosmic scale. You know, God has made the world and the universe and everything in it. Sin has come into the world. Uh, There's been a worldwide flood. Uh, In chapter 10, there was a genealogy of the world uh, of that day. But now we're really honing in, and we will for the rest of the book, on a a man and his family, Abram and, and, and his family. And so, I think I said last week or the week before, Genesis then mostly is a book, it's a book about familial stories and bloodlines and genealogies. And Abram is kind of this initial guy, uh, not the first, I guess, but, you know, a a major figure here in uh, the story that becomes this guy that God wants to kind of covenant with and work through to bring a remedy through, a blessing through into a a cursed world. And so we actually pick up in uh, verses 10 to 26 of chapter 11. Uh, I'm not going to read that today, just comment on it, mostly because, well, for time, but because it's a repetition from a couple of weeks ago, Uh, it's essentially a secondary genealogy uh, to the one we read in chapter 10, or or part of it a couple of weeks ago, that refocuses on Shem, who's one of Noah's sons. Uh, As the line, we we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but as the line of faith and blessing and salvation. So, remember up to this point, God has been working strangely with some people. uh, Positively, he's been saving some. There's been a line of faith kind of identified, or salvation or blessing. Uh, Shem continues in that line. And, and he was the one in chapter 9 who covered, literally, literally covered his dad Noah's nakedness when he was passed out drunk on the floor. That's what Shem does. And so it's actually on the heels of that that God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to covenant with you. I'm going to bless, or Noah, Noah does this, but God kind of, through, through Noah, blesses Shem and says, blessing will come through you to the world. I'm going to bless you. And so and not well, kind of Japheth, one of his other sons too, but not Ham, and there are reasons for that. But um, but uh, but Shem being this one who covers his father's nakedness, and 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 as we talked about, like Christ, who would eventually come into the world, do the very same thing for us spiritually, cover our shame, cover our nakedness, and and so to link Christ with Shem genealogically, and Christ does come from Shem. Christ comes from the line of covering nakedness. To do that is not just to say this is about bloodlines, it's to say it's about theology. Shem covered nakedness and so does Jesus at an even better level, an even better scale. So Shem and Jesus are kind of bookends to this greater bloodline or genealogical record of blessing that God is is doing and recording in the Bible. But in the meantime, we meet other people, uh, people like Abram and others who also fall in the genealogical record, but do more than that. They resemble the one who would come to kind of complete them or be a finish line to them. Jesus. They point ahead in different capacities, uh, some more than others. So, so again, at chapter 11, verses 10 to 26, that Shem genealogy, basically why it's there for kind of a second time is to undergird, this is the line of Christ. This is the line of blessing. This is the line we're going to focus on now, or God is, This is what he's going to write about, how he's going to work in history. He's going to choose people in this line, by grace, not because they're great people, but simply by grace, because he loves them, uh, to covenant with them, to speak promises to them, to save them, to be patient with them, and to have them somehow sovereignly resemble his son, who will later come into history, to be second versions of all of them. It was always about Christ, always, 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 and and today will be no, um, no exception, and so the end of 11, then, we'll pick up kind of at the end of that, though, because I want set to set the stage more explicitly for Terah, who is a descendant of Shem, but also an ancestor of Abram, and so let's read that now. Uh, 11, to twelve we'll start here in verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in uh, Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed.'" So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. All right, so a couple quick words on Abram. I think I might have mentioned actually one of these it always blurs together with first service, but anyway, just to be clear. Uh, later, Abram is called Abraham. God changes his name, and we'll call him that today because the New Testament does in reference to this passage, and so we'll look at that. Abraham and Abram are the same guy, just to be sure that's clear. Otherwise, none of this is going to make sense today. Um, second, Secondly, we don't know a lot other than he had a wife named Sarai. She was barren at this point anyway. This is kind of all we know. She, uh, They were older people, um, 75 at least for Abraham and... It's likely that Sarai was a uh, similar age, maybe a little bit younger, but still older. Um, Abram was from the line of Shem. We talked about that. And then just uh, geographically, to get your bearings here, so um, on the right side uh, in the red circle, and thank you for changing that. Is that Spence? Did you change that? Someone changed that. It was not, yeah, anyway, it's not going to make any sense to you guys, but it was circling Babylon in first service. And I have no idea why. It's really weird. It would have been a great joke. Uh, just a way to mess with a preacher is to just subtly do that. But anyway, it's where it should be now. So uh, it, it's this Ur of the Chaldeans is circled there. That's where Abram originated from and where he was called out of by God. And the brown line uh, just signifies his journey to um, Canaan, which is this fertile land on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, which is later called the Promised Land, later called Israel, uh, which is not called that here, but you can see Jerusalem uh, there. And then the brown line signifies him going on past the land to Egypt because there was a famine, and uh, Spence will talk about that next, next week, actually. But basically, it gives you an idea of how far he went and uh, what his journey uh, looked like and, uh, and everything. We'll come back to some uh, aspects of this, uh, not graphic-wise, but theologically in uh, just a minute. So uh, a couple of angles then today we're going to take just to get your bearings here. We're going to do that. We've done this before with narrative. It's a helpful way to look at the Bible, uh, by the way, too, if you're just um, looking for the right way to interpret it. There's a lot of ways to do it, but that are helpful. This is a helpful way as you read narrative, and that is to look at the Bible through a human and divine lens, uh, in the spirit of how Christ is both human and divine himself, Uh, This being, and him being the Word, capital W, of God. uh, This being the written Word, uh, in the spirit of just who he is, and this book being about him. There are human aspects, and there are these spiritual divine aspects, and uh, a a lot of times that's pretty clear. A lot of times it's not at all. Uh, This, I think, falls kind of in the middle. (laughs) Hopefully I can make it more clear as we go on, but um, I'll explain more about what that means as we go, but just so you know, that's basically the outline today, is uh, Abram, the human side, and Abram, the divine side. So first is the human side, or in other words, Abram, the type of Christian. So an example of us uh, here that we understand our story through and uh, call to uh, apply more of our story, uh, you know, to our lives in light of. And so we'll, we'll get to that. So what I mean by this is that, that the Bible treats this man, this is why it's so important to understand who this guy is, and, and we're going to read more about him in Genesis, but especially this passage and the context surrounding his call The New Testament does so much with it. And so to understand this is to get so much of the New Testament and so much about salvation, so much about what salvation is not. Uh, And we'll see the contrast here in just uh, a minute. But the Bible treats this man and this passage and surrounding context as a paradigm for salvation. Our story's in it too. What God starts here, he continues throughout the Bible, pattern-wise. And here he uses the language in... in, um, 11 and 12 here, of seed and offspring in all the families of the earth to hint at the idea that others in his line will resemble him and somehow be a part of his story. So Abraham's story, uh, the promises God's bringing, all the nations of the earth somehow will be blessed through him. it just implies, even that language alone, offspring, seed, the language alone implies that more people will somehow participate with what he's participating in. There'll be Covered or blessed or they'll share somehow in his experiences. And faith, this is a really important thing too. So, you know, if you're a note taker, this is an important thing. Faith is the big issue the New Testament links with him here. New Testament faith and Old Testament faith, Christian faith is the big issue the New Testament links with Abram and what he's doing here in, in chapter 12. Uh, one explicit place you see this in the New Testament is Hebrews 11:8. It says, "By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, looking to this very passage today, and he went out not knowing where he was going." And so let 's walk through this then and look at this principle of faith, but just kind of widen out too, and see how our stories are resembled in, or how this one resembles ours. Uh, our stories as as Christians. So first God speaks, right? Kind of out of nowhere. God has a pattern of doing this, at least the way it's written here, uh, is we're supposed to kind of have this jarring <laughs> moment of why he's, why is he speaking? We've had this genealogies for a couple of chapters and all of a sudden God speaks to this one guy randomly in Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, of, of all places, so way, way out there to, uh, to the east, a kind of a no-name uh, place, but of the line of Shem. And so God spoke, which if you've been here, we've been harping on this over and over again uh, because the scriptures, I think, do. God speaks, especially in this way, uh, to those he loves by grace. And surprisingly so. Uh, again, it's, we can ask the question, why does he speak to him? And it's hard to answer that. There's, there's not a lot of rationale behind why he uh, is, is speaking. Uh, Joshua 24, 2 and 3 says, this is a little bit later in the Old Testament, but speaking about this event, uh, God speaking to Israel, it says, The Lord said, Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, uh, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nehor, and they served other gods. That's key. Then I took your father Abraham and led him to this new land. So if we apply the same question to that, this is kind of a helpful you know, contextual commentary on exactly what was happening to Abraham here. If we ask the same question, Well, why did God choose this guy seemingly out of nowhere? You know, was it his own devout spirituality? Was he, was he in the process of being a good guy? Was he called righteous here, uh, at least as it pertains to his own moral effort? Was Abram seeking him at all? And, and the answer is, across the board, resounding no, 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 no. He was nose deep in worshiping other gods. And God looked at him and said, Mine. And then go, be with me in this new place. Leave this and come here to be with me, where I am. And so then if, if we apply the same question, I mean, it's still kind of unclear, but if you really think about it, the only thing that makes sense in terms of why God chose him, he wants to use him, of course, for certain things, but that's not the main thing. He chose him because it's, it, this is a spiritual thing, remember, too. He's calling him away from other gods, he chose him because he loved him. It's, it's the only thing that makes sense. Love is a choice, right? The Bible defines love this way all over the place. Love is uh, patient. It's kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's, it's a choice to move towards and die for someone. The greatest form of love is to lay down your life for your friends, Jesus says in John fifteen thirteen, It's an action. And so in this sense, it led God, though he's everywhere, it kind of led him across the plains, to Ur of the Chaldeans, to find this one man and say, as, as your back is turned to me, I'm calling you my son. I'm calling you away from this life, this hellish race you're running, to a new land of blessing where, where I am. Uh, basically, basically back to Eden. You know, up to this point, people are separated from God. They're not in the Garden of Eden anymore, not with God. Calling them back to be in a new land uh, where, where he is. So God spoke by grace. He, he, uh, to fill this out a little bit more, he called Abram away from his father's house, his other gods, into a new land that he would show him. And then verse 4 is key. So Abram went. That's something the New Testament picks up on, which we'll look at here. Uh, but so Abram went. He heard him. He believed him. He, he in, in some sense, said God is better than what's going on here. He trusted and he picked up his possessions, his family, and he he left. So, as I said before, basically that pattern, there's more details there, but that pattern of what I just said, so uh, leaving the father's, being called, leaving the father's house, a new land where God is, traveling there and going to be there with him, uh, that is a, that pattern alone is a harbinger of later ones that would resemble it. Being called out of a land to a new one, in this case, in the Old Testament, since Canaan or the Promised Land or something uh, like that, but where God's presence is, specially you know, whether an individual or a small like Abram, a small group like Ruth and Naomi, if you know that story in the Old Testament, um, they're not in the land either, but they're, they they um, journey there, or a large nation like Israel, not being in that land so often, being cast out because of their sin, or a famine pushes them out, or whatever, and then they're and it's a problem, and they're called back and saved back into it, and God makes a way back. It happens over. And over and over again it, it's a yo-yo experience <laughs> uh, constantly and this is why understanding this paradigm helps us understand the whole the really the whole Old Testament in some ways because it keeps on happening people are kicked out they're not where God is God graciously brings them back to this land which is symbolic of of his of his presence so it's here it's paradigmatic of the Old Testament but as we as we've kind of been saying already It's ultimately true for us, New Testament Christians as well. This is how the Bible handles this spiritually uh, on the New Testament side. In that, when we're saved, we too are called by grace out of our Father's house as well, which can be understood broadly as our old life, or more specifically as Satan's house, whose children we are until Christ adopts us out of it or him. And we proceed by faith to a new land, or in the New Testament, Christ is called an inheritance, which is land language. He's the ultimate place of God's blessing. He's where we go to find relief from the curse and deliverance from our sin and from death. And so really it's the same thing for us. Not physically, but spiritually this is what happens for everyone who believes. All of us in the room who have believed the gospel have basically had this exact same thing happen uh, to us in terms of what's happening here to, to Abram. Galatians 3, 7 to 11. Uh, This is a helpful New Testament uh, commentary on all this and how it connects the stories. So let me read this and I'll make a few comments. Galatians 3. Know then that it is those by faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify or make righteous or save the Gentiles, the non Jews, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. All right, so a lot here, but a few things for today. Uh, first, going back to the beginning. Remember, he's linking the stories here, right, explicitly. He's saying Abraham was the man of faith, and to be his offspring or child, it's part of the promise, remember, uh, Abraham's experiences are going to bring forth blessing to his offspring. To be one of those offspring is to be like him in the area of faith, in the area of faith. So to, so to be blessed, to be saved, to be close to God again in the land of his presence is simply to live by faith, or trust in him or dependence on him alone for salvation. And so again, it ties our stories together. Even, even saying uh, here, kind of this strange phrase, which we talked about a few weeks ago too, uh, saying that God's promise in Genesis 12 is the gospel beforehand. Isn't that amazing? When, when God said, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, basically what Paul is saying here, who's you know, on the side of this side of the cross like us, and so He's saying the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death on a cross for our sins and his resurrection three days later. Basically, Abraham, God is saying that to Abraham. He's saying the blessing is ultimately, it's veiled here in Genesis 12. It's my son coming into the world to die, into a curse world to bless it, by dying for its curse, by dying for its, its sins. That's veiled, it's foggy, but it's there. According to Paul, in Galatians 3, uh, it's uh, and in that, more than just the literal bloodline of Abraham will be saved, it's uh, the, the, the Jewish bloodline. It's actually always been not about that. It's been about those who, like him, have faith. And so it's actually a big argument. I don't have time for it today, but Paul goes into this in other letters as well, just saying to really be Jewish, to be an Israelite, is to have faith. So someone who's not Jewish, who has faith in Christ, is more Jewish than a Jew ethnically who doesn't have faith in Christ. That's basically Paul in Romans 9 to whatever. I mean, it's basically the book, you know, so. But it's that, that's basically what he's saying. It, to be a Jew, to be an Israelite, is to be one spiritually, he says. So, so to partake in Abraham's blessing, to be on this side of what God's promising way back here thousands of years ago, is to, to resemble him in the area of faith or trust in, in God. Uh, So so it's about salvation, and like we've been saying. In fact, we actually know back in Genesis 12, too, and with Joshua 24, that other passage I read in mind, even there we know it's more about some arbitrary land that, you know, God's identifying here with Ur of the Chaldeans, and then I think I'll just pick this land. It's fertile. They can grow things, so I'll call them there. It's not arbitrary place to arbitrary place. God's not a travel agent here. He's not just randomly picking some people to... I think I'll be into travel today, you know, and that's good. Travel is a good thing, but it's it's not it's not the ultimate point, the physical manifestation of what's happening here. We know even back in the story itself that there's something spiritual here. And the reason we know that is because Abraham is calling, sorry, God is calling Abraham away from what? Worshipping other gods. This is not just Abraham go and move it's Abraham go away from worshiping other gods to worshiping me it's exactly what he does he sets up an altar when he gets to Canaan he worships and calls on the Lord see even right here we know it's more than about geographical travel so even here it's this idea of God's doing that so we get a physical narrative picture of what happens spiritually to all people throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament era, into our day, who trust in God for the deliverance of their sins through Jesus Christ, we leave, we enter, we worship, we're saved. And so, then what he does is back to Galatians three. Uh, more commentary here. He he contrasts this. It doesn't just say it's about faith. He contrasts it with works or law-keeping type spiritualities when he says. Those who rely on works and the law are under a curse, for the Old Testament itself says so. And he quotes a couple of things which says in the Old Testament, which say that, all, that people who don't keep all of what's written in the book of the law, it's all of the moral code and do it, are under a curse, and no one does. So all are under a curse. Those who rely on those things are under a curse, but those who have faith are blessed. Faith in the right direction, towards the right God, uh, the God of the the scriptures are are blessed. So the contrast is really important there. And this is a big biblical theme, really important to see this. It's not just faith. It's faith at at the expense of and contrasting with relying on works of the law to save us. Can't have both. Uh, So Abraham's story then is a story of a messed up guy living by faith, not a man who kept the law. In fact, there's, there is no law at this time. It's interesting, uh, elsewhere in Galatians, uh, there's so much in the New, Test- New Testament about Abraham, so it's hard to summarize all this, but elsewhere Paul makes a, a chronological argument about when the law or the Ten Commandments or all that stuff happened in the Bible, which was much after Abraham. He says, well, if, if God is really intending to make it all about law, why does he wait so long to bring it into history? It's actually hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after all this stuff happens in Genesis 12 when God says, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. It's Much later. So if God's intending to make that the main thing, he's putzing around here. What's he waiting for? And what Paul says is all this Abraham stuff preceding that uh, actually rises above it and becomes better than it because it, it predates it. So it's kind of a picture of grace or the New Testament before that Old Testament proper associated with the Ten Commandments and other things comes into history much, much later. And so his argument is always, it's always been by faith. It's always been by grace. People always have been saved by the call of God, by the saving works of God in the world. It's never been by law. And so there's a, there's a reason why he added it, which no time for today, uh, but it came, the fact that it came later is... Uh, evidence that it is a lesser, lesser thing. And so that's, that's the principle here. Uh, as we really hone in on us then and this New Testament side, the principle uh, is encouraging the church in the New Testament away from a type of spirituality that relies on, on works. We sang that song uh, to end our worship set, uh, Now Why the Sphere?, It's one of my favorites, and it has that lyric in there on, Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God since Jesus sets you free. Rely then on his precious blood. What does Galatians 3 say? Those who rely on works of the law are cursed. What do you rely on is the question. What do you ultimately, just check your heart right now, what do you rely on? Do you rely on the blood of Christ or works of the law, performance before God, self-righteousness? You cannot do both. You cannot do both. Paul's not saying in Galatians 3, you you kind of mishmash them together or add them. It's not Jesus then works. It's relying on, in terms terms of reliance and salvation, it's always one thing for the Christian and the non-Christian. What are we going all in on completely and saying, I'm, I'm, go- I'm betting everything on this one number, on this one hand? Which is it? It's always one of two things. It's Jesus or something else, but it's, it's never, and as, as works play into this, it's never both. It's, it's always uh, reliance in one direction uh, throughout throughout our life and so in new testament terms then it's it's going back to genesis 12 it is beautifully paradigmatic of our story you know we we hear the voice of god we believe in his son we believe the gospel that he died for our sins he rose again he died for us we respond leaving behind our father's house our old life we repent to use another word we enter the land of grace by faith, all the time having faith or trust or dependence on God to save us alone because we can't. And then we worship him uh, instead of our former gods. It, it's, it is, this is, the Bible says in the New Testament, this is exactly what happens later to Christians. It's always by faith. It's just more clear in the New Testament. But it's the same, it's the same story. And, and actually, too, this is a kind of a cool thing. Uh, it's easy to read over, but it's a particular kind of faith even back here in uh, Genesis 11 and 12. You know, when, when uh, Abram was promised blessing to his offspring, uh, remember, that's that's to a couple that's 75 plus. It's pretty old. And the Bible is clear here, too, that Sarai was barren. She had no child. And, and this is an important thing. That's going to come up later, too, but she's the first of many barren women that God chooses to work through because God's always... Bent on showing all of us but the people involved especially maybe or just all of us that God saves we don't God brings life where there's no life and so whether they're they're past the age of childbearing as mentioned in Genesis 12 or just with with Sarah here being barren and also no child I mean for God to say your children and your children's children your bloodline is going to be the way by which I bring my Messiah into the world, bring blessing amidst a cursed world. It's kind of like, well, God, you have nothing to work with. God, you have absolutely nothing to work with here. And so the fact that they believed God and they left and they just went all in on that promise, what does that say about their particular belief, their particular faith? I mean, they're actually having faith in an infantile kind of way that God ha- has to bring life from non-life. He has to bring life from death. He has to, bring, he has to base, basically raise the dead. This is actually how Hebrews 11 connects this. It says uh, that, that there's actually a resurrection-type hope here in, in Abraham and Sarai's um, hearts and minds, that they're trusting that God can, bring, can do the impossible, not just that he'll provide kind of along the way, and I don't know where I'm going to get my lunch. I hope that he provides me some lunch along the Euphrates. It's not just that. It's a particular belief that God will raise the dead. And starting right here, Abraham's thinking, in my wife's womb, that's never produced a child, miraculously. And so that then helps us, and that's what the kingdom's about. It's, it's, it's about that all this kind of stuff. It's about leaving a land, entering a new one, It's about faith, it's about worship, it's about believing in the resurrection, Uh, not on moral performance, to contrast that in Galatians 3, but it's about all those types of thematic things that find their finish line in Jesus. Which then uh, helps us segue into this uh, latter section because we're still not quite done. We have to ask that question, even though we've kind of been saying it and a lot of you know, some of you don't yet. But we have to, we still have to ask the question, how can all this be? Like, how, how can God look at a, a, a blasphemer, a, another God worshiper, a sinner, a rebel, with his back towards turn, turned towards him and say, mine, and save him, and call him by grace? If God is perfectly just and always, rightly so, has to punish sin, how can mercy come in and kind of trump that? How do those two things go together? Or... You know, what exactly, from our side, what exactly are we putting our trust in? Because if this is our story, this is kind of a foggy version, if we're entering a new land, what does that even mean? Well, what's the land? Who's the land? And what are we being called to now uh, spiritually? Because it is spiritual. You know, I, I've never, never known a Christian who reads this passage and says, well, I think God wants the Minneapolis church to move to Portland kind of be the church there because that's the promised land. Like I've never, I think we just naturally move past that. We know there's some spiritual component here that's intended, not a literal, uh, literal thing. So uh, to do that, we got to look at the other side of this, which is uh, not just Abram as a type of Christian, but the divine side. Abram as a type of Christ himself and see his story uh, in it as well to fully see what the solution and the remedy and the grace, and how God actually can work graciously towards sinners, how that all can, can occur. So what I mean by this is that Christ really is the true, uh, fulfillment's one word, but he, he's the ultimate offspring of Abraham. Uh, Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham, Remember, this is a New Testament book, remember, looking back at this story, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. But look what he says here. It does not say and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring singular to one, and to your offspring. Then he says who that offspring is. That offspring, singular, is Christ. And so what's saying here is, there's a lot, but for today, what God's saying in part is God's promise is to Christ ultimately and about Christ. This means that we see Jesus as the one through whom God brings blessing to a cursed world. Not Abraham and not his physical children. Ultimately, there will be reflections of that in the Genesis storyline and throughout the Old Testament. Ultimately, it is referring uh, to Christ. All the families of the earth being blessed, and, and that might be a commonsensical thing. I think for some people it is. It's okay if it's not for you, but um, you know, to, to, to hear someone say all the... Think about what Abraham was thinking, you know, when he heard this, but all the families of earth will be blessed through you. I mean, that's, that's supra-Abramaic. That goes outside of Abraham almost instantly. When God talks about blessing, which is basically a synonym of being saved, all the families of the earth will be saved through you, salvation only comes from God. And so probably automatically Abraham's thinking, well, God will do something through me. It's not me. God will do something through me here. It won't be Actually me or my children it, it passes him up it ultimately refers to um, uh, To to Christ and so with with Jesus in mind then being that ultimate promise of blessing to a cursed world to the nations How is that how does that come into being? It's not just a vague idea. It's very specific and the answer is by seeing Well, we'll start here by seeing Christ's story not just ours Christ the ultimate human being's story in Abraham's. And so it it starts by saying this. uh, How is this a blessing? By Jesus being a true and better version of Abraham who truly answered the call to leave the comforts of his father's house or or heaven, leaving his father's house, God the father's house, and to go into a cursed world to bring a blessing uh, to his spiritual offspring. And he did this by becoming a curse for us. Uh, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree or crucified. So the way he brings blessing is to be a blessing that absorbs a curse. It's it's just classic substitutionary theology right there. So he's becoming a curse as a non-cursed person Becoming sin for sinners so that we might become the righteousness of God or that we might become a blessing, that we might become saved, that we might actually be chosen out of the land of sin and placed into a new place where God is, that we might get back into Eden. All these themes come together. So it's by becoming a curse. But what I want you to see here is the idea of obedience. Like Abraham obeyed God, the Bible said. Christ is the ultimate one who obeyed the call as God the Son to come into the world and bring, uh, bring a blessing, to come into this new land or this new earth, this cursed place, and bring, uh, bring deliverance. <clears throat> Hebrews 10 is a great passage on this too. Let me read Hebrews 10, uh, 5 to 10. make a couple of quick comments on it. Uh, it. It highlights this. It says in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is quoting Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, so hardly needs to be explained, right? No, I'm just kidding. It's a tricky one. But let me just make a couple of comments. Uh, basically, what he's doing here is he's saying, King David in the Old Testament, who wrote Psalm 40, as a part of this prayer we have in the Bible, is saying, more important than sacrifice or Law keeping in one sense, because Hebrews widens out here and says, This is according to law, more important than that is my obedience to you as a king or or more generally doing your will those are kind of set those aren't the, the one is going to end up pointing to the other, but they are different things so you know offering animal sacrifices and and sin offerings and lawlessness is set next to a a David like King saying behold I've come to do your will and they represent two Testaments this is the Old Testament animal sacrifice and law keeping and commandment keeping and so forth and the New Testament is represented in uh, a Davidic like King who has come to do the will of the father who's been obedient to the call and that's what Hebrews is he's interpreting Psalm 40 for us it's unclear in Psalm 40 but here he's saying actually Jesus really said these words you think David said them? Uh, actually, the first part of Hebrews 10 says, when Christ came into the world, he said Psalm 40 through his ministry, through his gospel, uh, through, his, through his works. He's spiritualizing. It. He's showing how the theme reaches its goal in Jesus, the ultimate David. Uh, in that, he's saying Christ surpassed the law himself to serve as a means by which we enter into covenant with God. So again, the, the question then is, This is, it's kind of Galatians 3-esque, we sort of looked at this, but it's interesting how this comes up a lot, these contrasts between law and Jesus. Uh, It's, is that Jesus came into the world to be obedient to God, his call from heaven, like Abraham, obedient to the call to come travel a great distance to save a people for himself and bring a blessing. But, but here's, here's the key for Christians and non-Christians alike. This is kind of the sacramental, oh, this is... You know, this is a relief. This is the preaching moments. You know, the, this, this, the theology behind kind of the facts here. The big takeaway is that, or the question, what is in between you and God now? That's what this is saying, right? What, what, what's, what's the mediator? What stands in between you? Is it you? Is it you trying harder and doing something? Is it animal sacrifice? Is it law keeping? Is it commandments? Is it ordinances? It's Old Testament. What stands between you and God now alone is someone saying, Behold God, I have come to do your will. And that's Jesus. It's Jesus being obedient. It's Jesus saying, I will be the ultimate Abraham. It's Jesus saying, I will travel the distance. It's Jesus saying, I will become a curse so that the blessing can come. It's his profession as an ultimate priest of God who comes in between us, the holy God and sinners. It's his work, ultimately. See, it's the ultimate, whew, ultimate relief. It's not about us. You know, like God identified Abraham, he identified or is identifying you all today through his son and saying, see, this is how he can do it. This is how he can show justice and mercy. He can move towards sinners because he himself is going to take on that sin. He's going to deal with it. He's going to die for it. He's going to die among criminals. He's going to be tortured. He's going to bleed out and slowly suffocate to death. And and He's going to be whipped. He's going to be put to shame. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be derided. All for us. He's going to die ultimately. He, He died. He took it on he substituted himself. And, and so that's what Hebrews is getting at. It's trying to encourage a very weak and weary and bored church. And saying, guys, don't forget this. This is the most amazing thing you'll ever hear in your life, regardless of what you feel about it. Factually speaking, if God did this for you, if every day when you wrestle with sin, if every day when you wake up and you, you have no motivation to get out of bed, every day when your marriage is on the rocks, Every day when you question God's goodness, every day when you're just at wits' end, every day when you're really comfortable and when you're in a really good place, Spirit, doesn't matter. Every single day of your life, the only thing that stands between you and God is Jesus saying, Behold, I will do your will, God. That's it. They're juxtaposed and contrasted with law. As it says here, The second came to do away with the first. When Jesus says, behold, I've come to do your will, he did away with the Old Testament by fulfilling it. The the requirements there, he superseded them. He passed them up. He replaced them with his own obedience with with himself. So to wrap this up then, uh, two things here. Um, I think if you, if you were to summarize it, it there's basically there's a principle and a fulfillment here. So faith over and against works or relying on works is the principle. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Those are different. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the passage. So to flush that out a bit then on the principle side of things, and it's important I think to move from the principle to the fulfillment because Jesus is always better than us. You know, if we end a passage with it being mostly about us, you know, good luck finding happiness in that. Uh, but it's about Jesus, much different. And it always, and it, it is anyway, so, but regardless. Faith is the principle. So, the question here is, uh, is Abraham's story your story? Not. You know, and, and there's, there's two sides to this. And I'm, I'll just say this to you Christians. If you're a Christian, it is your story. It is. You may have not known that, but it is your story. What he started here, what God started here, he continues all the way throughout history until one day he found you, nose deep in worshiping other gods, and he said, mine, in love. And he called you away from it. He died for you. He, he moved on your heart to understand the things of grace when before you were speaking different languages. He undid that, that Babylonic curse where you can understand people or God. He he allowed you to understand him, and and you understood. You left. It's your story. But at the same time, this is not to say we can't look at this and say, um, try harder to make it your story. (laughs) You know, it it already is. But if you're a Christian, there there are things you can do in your life to kind of make it more your your story. You can keep hearing the gospel call, the, the call idea. You've been called by God to salvation, but are you still hearing it every single day? You'd better make it a part of your life. Uh, It's really hard to continue in the race if you don't. What are you doing to hear the call of the gospel every single day of your life, in community and alone, with your families? And how about this question? Have you actually left your father's house? Because, again, if you're a Christian, uh, you have. At the same time, are you? Are, are you stopping worshiping the gods of your youth? Uh, in, in any way whatsoever, are you still on the throne of your life? In what capacities? How are you killing that? How are you turning the back to that? How is Jesus more precious than whatever it is that you used to go all in on and say, that's my Savior? And you may not have thought about it as a Savior, but it was making you happy, and when you didn't have it, you were angry. It's a God. And so, but regardless, how how are, this is part of, the the Bible calls this repentance in the New Testament, but here it's leaving your father's house, the same thing. How are we doing that? In what capacity? Do you have help with that? You know, Christ says, repent and believe. So repent from your sins, turn from your old way, and believe in me. In other words, leave the old land and, and, and enter. And then last here is, is your faith in him particularly bent towards the resurrection? Um, because as Christians, remember, we don't just have a vague faith. Uh, Christians, most non-Christians believe in God. That that doesn't make them Christians. Uh, Christians have a particular bent towards belief in the resurrection, a belief that we'll actually be raised from the dead someday on this earth, that these bodies will be remade, that God has power over physical death, that he will renew creation. Uh, That's something Abraham and Sarai kind of had a little bit because they... Abraham looked at his barren wife and said, God is able to overrun that and give me a child. Otherwise, why leave? So there, they're already kind of believing, in a very small way, in the resurrection. Fast forward that to now on this side of the cross. We have to have that. What makes us Christian if we don't have that, right? A particular, active, ongoing celebration and belief in and hope for the resurrection of the body. And so belief in the cross, obviously, and the atonement, of, uh, for sin, belief in Jesus' resurrection, and then belief that we will uh, share in that someday as we journey on and hope amid sickness and death and despair and bad news and wars and famines and all these just birth pang like things that happen in the, the earth that precede the end. Uh, amidst all of that, do we have a particular bent towards belief in the resurrection? And then, but lastly, here, just a final call because, again, this is, this is how it gets weird. <laughs> this is just classic biblical theology, so I guess you got to get used to it. But this passage is about you, but it's not really about you. It's about you, but it's, it's not really at the same time. So, in, in other words, um, there's principle here of faith, but, you know, it, it's not really about you being an ultimately perfect Abraham. Someone already did that. 2,000 years ago, someone already traveled from Ur to the land of Canaan, spiritually speaking, from heaven to earth, and he obeyed the call perfectly for us to go and die for our sins. He did it. It's done. It's finished. And he will help you in your journey. So at the end of the day, be at peace. This is not, if you you leave, oh man, I can leave my father's house better. Miss the point. Christ left his father's house for you. The only thing between you and God now is him saying, I'll go. I'll die. I'll love. I'll make you famous. I'll travel. I'll bring back a bride for you, God. I'll help you adopt more children into your family. I'll save the rebel. I'll shine light into the, into the darkness. That's what stands between you and God, is, is a Christ who loves you. And, and remember, if you're, if you're a Christian and, and even if you're not, this is happening for you in the room right now, but if you are, um, a Christian, and this is your story, and it is, then God's the one who found you. That actually happened, you know? I mean, be amazed at that. If it doesn't amaze you, then just work harder at being amazed by that, which you can do. You can read it again. You can pray that it would amaze you more. You can reflect on it. You can memorize it. You can let it sink into your heart until it blows your mind. And it just makes you stand in awe of a God who would love a messed up person like me. You know, and um, that's what the gospel is all about. And so be be encouraged, be at peace. Apply principles of faith, but be at peace. This is about a Christ who looked at us, nose deep in worshiping other gods, and says, mine, and said, mine. I'll take that one. I'll call that one. I'll save that one. And he's going to keep doing it until he comes back. Praise be to God. So let's pray to that end. God, thank you uh, so much for your grace uh, in the gospel of Genesis 12 today. Uh, Thank you for uh, giving us a paradigm. You've already done this in Genesis, but a continued paradigm of grace, of calling the unworthy, calling the unlikely, calling the stubborn, calling the ones with backs turned, nose deep in worshiping other things, sinners of showing grace to those types like Abraham. God, I pray that you would do that more. Thank you that you've done it for so many people in this room. You've loved us. You've died for our sins by grace. You've raised yourself from the dead for us by grace. You've promised new life for us by grace. You've called us into that, the the new land of those ideas by grace alone. And so we just thank you that we don't have this picture in Genesis 12 of Abraham just deciding to go to the land by himself and pitching a flag in the ground with his face on it with the hopes that people would see it so that they might know how amazing he is. That's not the story. The story is you making all of this happen on your dime. It's entirely by your will. It's entirely on your watch. It's entirely just because you love lost sinners like us. So thank you for coming to get us, rescue us, and save us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.